Alright everybody, today we've got another episode for you with probably our coolest guest, uh, Alan Gannett. He is CEO of Track Maven. Uh, if you don't know who he is, you're missing out. You should go check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, but he just came out with a book called Creative Curve. And I actually, I really dig it. I was, Alan, not to uh, not to say anything bad, but I, I wasn't sure what to expect. Because I, I, I really honestly thought it was going to be another one of those self-help uh, marketing books that everybody comes out with. But I really... I really dug, especially the beginning part of it with the historical context that you gave to line everything up. Uh, it was it was awesome. But Alan, welcome to the show. Dude, what an intro. I feel all this pressure now. Uh, I think I'm going to hang up and just go <laughs> under the covers and sleep all day because I don't know how I can live up to that. But thanks for having me, man. Dude, I'm super excited about it. So real quick, tell us a little bit about the book. How did you even come up with the idea? Why did you write it? Who would you write it for? Yeah, so the book is called The Creative Curve. It's out June 12th. Everywhere books are sold, as they say. And the whole idea for the book was I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid from New Jersey, and I tend to get frustrated at things sometimes. And I was starting to get frustrated a few years ago because, you know, for my company, um, you've been around for six years. We work with a lot of big brand marketers. And, you know, I talk to marketers, and I hear something like this. Um, you know, I'm just not that creative. And I was getting frustrated because I had spent some time sort of reading into the topic and researching it. And like creativity is not something where it's the result of a genetic lottery. It's not the story of the haves and the have-nots. In fact, there's a lot of really conclusive science that it's a nurturable, learnable skill. And so I started getting a little frustrated. When I get frustrated, things happen. And so that turned into a speech that I started giving that was sort of like a really light one-on-one on some of the background around creativity and how we actually know that it's not just this magical, mystical, divine thing. We actually know that it's something you can get better at. That speech did really well. It sort of snowballed into a book proposal, which snowballed into a book. And what the book turned into is the first half of the book is sort of a one-on-one on the history and science around creativity. Which I and love, how we... by the way. I geeked out so hard. <laughs> yeah, that. that makes me happy. Yeah. Um, and the second half of the book is I interviewed 25 famous creative geniuses. So, you know, billionaires like David Rubenstein, you know, startup founders like Alexis Ohanian, um, wow. Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo behind Dear Evan Hansen, La La Land, and The Greatest Showman. So some sort of modern day creative geniuses. And I break down four things I found they all do uh, to actually enhance their creativity, explain what they do, why they work, and the science of why they work. And so the book is meant for any aspiring creative, so whether that's a marketer, a startup founder, an artist. And what I tried to do, and I appreciate you noticing, is um, I tried to make the book, you know, I think a lot of business books sort of fail because the first chapter sort of the point, and then every other chapter is just an anecdote supporting that original point. And so I tried to make the book more like an onion, where every chapter there's more stuff, um, and it's not just sort of one big point for 220 pages, but there's more points that are being made, and you learn stuff along the way. And so the goal of the book was really, um, so by the time you finish reading the book, for you to be persuaded um, that creativity is something you can learn and that you can feel you actually have the tools to do that. Yeah. No, I, I love that you set it up with historical and scientific context. Going like back to ancient Greece, like I 
like I said, I geeked out hardcore on that. And some wow. of the some of the things like just to kind of set this up uh, for the listeners that have not had a chance to read any of it yet. Uh, here are a few quotes from the very beginning that I thought were pretty pretty substantial. So a recent global study of 5,000 people found that only 25% believe that they are fulfilling their creative potential. That's, I feel like if there was a larger group of people, like that percentage might even go down. Uh, but that was, <laughs> that was huge. And yeah, then, I, mean, I, think, I think we as people, you know, when we're in kindergarten, we're finger painting, we all sort of recognize our own creativity. Right. But we're told by, you know, our parents, schools, all these different people in life that creativity is scary, it's risky, it's this thing that, you know, you're not supposed to do, you're supposed to become a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, insurance salesman, whatever it is. And so by the time you're entering college, you've been conditioned that creativity is this thing that, you know, there's some people who are great at it, but if you're not born with this crazy amount of talent, then don't even try. And what we miss in that discussion is that that's not true. There isn't this idea of just like, you know, the story of Mozart's a classic one where, um, you know, we talk about Mozart as this, you know, child prodigy. You know, we've all seen the movie Amadeus where he's like right. three years old and playing the piano for the Pope. And the issue is that that's not true. That's not true. That what happened with Mozart was when he was three years old, he had, a mo you know, what we would call in modern day a helicopter dad. And his helicopter dad was like, hey, Mozart, uh, little Mozart, you're going to become the world's best piano player. And little Mozart was like, what? He's like, you're going to do it. And he hired for him. <laughs> the the word for word quotes, by the way. Word for word. We're historical. Yeah, you're historical Quoting uh, history right there. He, he said, I'm going to hire the best music teachers in all of Europe. And you're going to practice three hours every single day. And little Mozart was like, whatever you say, dad. And um, little Mozart proceeded to practice three hours, seven days a week with literally the best music teachers in all of Europe for his entire childhood. This is not the story of some kid who just like popped out of the womb playing the piano. This is a story of a kid who from a very young age had basically conditional love placed on him by a father who said, you have to become a great musician or else. And yeah, of course you'd become pretty darn good at music after practicing your entire childhood three hours a day with the best teachers in all of Europe. Like that is not the story of easy talent. Right. And so I think we really, as a culture, we actually use this as an excuse for ourselves. We actually tell ourselves that, well, for some people it's easy and it's not easy for me, so why should I try? And I think that's a cop-out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I 100% agree. I mean, one of the things, though, real quick, uh, even though I didn't agree with most of, was it Cesare Lombroso? How do you say his name? Uh, yeah. So I didn't agree with almost everything that he said except for when he called people that are geniuses uh that they have a tendency to puns and plays on words <laughs> that's like that's my specialty so i'm pretty sure that means i'm a genius oh the other... i can tell from a mile away yeah, uh, yeah. you no, got it you're rippling with genius as they oh, say yeah. i like it yeah no but <laughs> uh the thing that i liked the most and we'll we'll dive into this when we get to the actual topic but when you started getting into the whole IQ testing and the uh, correlation between IQ points and creativity, could you dive into that a little bit? Because you're going to be able to speak to it a lot better than I am. But I loved that section because it showed it doesn't really matter what your IQ score is as far as creativity goes. Can you talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so 
So one of the sort of mistakes that we have when it comes to creativity is we talk about creativity and genius as if they're intertwined. Uh, you have to be a genius to be creative. The issue is that there is no real science supporting this. In fact, there's a lot of science supporting the opposite point, that creativity and IQ are not related. So there's a few different ways which scientists have look at, looked at this. Um, there's some famous studies done where they take a group of people and they test for creative potential and they test for IQ and they find that above a relatively average IQ, there's no correlation between IQ and creative potential. But then there's even more fascinating studies where, for example, Lewis Terman, Mm -hmm. who's the godfather of the American version of the IQ test, he um, you know, wanted to prove a point that you know, people who were geniuses weren't like crazy menaces to society. Because in the early 1900s, late 1800s, this was actually something people thought, that geniuses were so good at one thing that they must be terrible at everything else. They're maladjusted. And so to, to make this point, he took a thousands and thousands of school-aged children, he tested them for IQ, and then he started sending them surveys every five years to see how their lives would unfold. So he basically took the kids who had a genius level IQ and started sending them surveys. Uh, and this actually, even after he died, you know, his protégés kept sending these surveys. And by the way, they called these kids the termites, which is terrible branding. But so he sent these termites, these surveys, and here's what they found. You know, the kids were relatively average in terms of you know, um, divorce, depression, suicide, alcoholism, all these things. They were, they were normal, which is what Lewis Terman tried to prove. But they were also normal in something else. They are also normal in success. They weren't actually that much more successful than everybody else. In fact, in this entire group of thousands and thousands of childhood geniuses who they followed throughout their entire lives, there was not a single Nobel laureate, not a single true household name. In fact, the only two future Nobel laureates that Lewis Terman tested as children were kids that didn't make the cut. And so we have this mistaken notion that book IQ is correlated with creativity. And it's not. And in fact, the standard IQ test is really just testing a very narrow set of skills around um, certain types of logical processing and information retention that isn't necessarily useful for creativity. And so we have this mistaken notion, notion in our culture um, that we really need to untangle. Yeah. No, I, I, I loved that section. I feel like that section is a, where it kind of frees people to realize, like, look, you don't have to be born a certain way to be creative. And I love that. And so that kind of draw, draws me to what our topic is. And so the, the question of the day that I've got for you and that I just kind of want to discuss and, and hash out with you is how can I, someone that's never created much more than a kindergarten cotton ball sheep, start creating content that people actually want to consume? Because that question right there, like how do you start creating content is the one that I probably get more than almost any other question, yeah. specifically, yeah. specifically about time. LinkedIn. But everybody always seems to have that question as if I have, I don't really even have the answer. <laughs> but but how, how does that, how does somebody even start creating content that people actually want to consume? Yeah, so I think it's 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 a you know it's a long it's a book length answer some may say, right. but I'll give you sort of the the short version. Um, you know, one of the fundamental things you need to understand when it comes to creativity is that the biggest driver of uh, consumer preference and taste really comes back down to evolutionary biology. 
And it turns that it turns out as people, we have these two underlying urges that drive our preferences. The first one is that we really crave for things that are familiar. So as people, our brains are wired to help us constantly process risk. And one of the ways we do that is by assessing something's level of familiarity. So imagine if you were a prehistoric cave dweller and you saw two different caves and one cave is the cave you slept in every night and the other cave is the cave you've never seen before. Your brain knows that new cave might be dangerous. I might die. I should go to that cave. I've slept in every single night. It's very familiar. So familiarity plays a strong role in human preference. But there's this other urge which is seemingly highly contradictory. The other urge is that we also seek out things that are novel, that are new because they represent sources of potential reward. So, you know, if you're a hunter gatherer and you see a berry in a field that kind of looks like a, you know, a small strawberry, let's say it's some, it's a novel berry. Um, you go, Oh, this is interesting. This might be a new potential source of food. I should eat this. I should check it out. Maybe this is the way I start getting my breakfast in the morning. But, these two things literally don't make sense together. These two things literally, we also, so we seek out novelty, but we also seek out familiarity. Like these are literally opposites. Right. Well, it turns out that this is our brain's really elegant way of balancing risk and reward. By having both of these contradictory urges, what our brain is constantly doing is actually looking for things that are the right balance of familiar and novel. We want things that are new, but not too new. So, for example, if you were in a field and you saw a berry that looked nothing like any berry you've ever seen before, your brain would go, eh, probably don't eat it. It's probably too high risk. It's too novel. And so it turns out that as consumers, we actually have this biological predilection for things that are a blend of familiar and novel. We don't actually like ideas that are so innovative, so original, so creative that they're like nothing we've ever seen before. We also don't like things that are so familiar that they're boring. So what we like are those things that are a blend. You know, Star Wars, for example, was a Western in space. Um, right now, there's, you know, this whole trend around these giant sushi burritos. You know, it's something that's oh familiar gosh. and novel, right? Yes. Sushi burritos. Dude, oh, it's have you had one yet? Have you had one yet? <laughs> I've amazing. never even heard of them. Oh, my oh, gosh. Oh, well, they're common. They're common. I mean, it's taking over D.C., San Francisco, New York. And because it's one of those things that it's familiar but novel. And so again and again, you see when you actually look into studies around consumer preference and consumer trends, that the ideas that take off are the ideas that are a blend of familiarity and novelty. And so for any creative field, whether that's LinkedIn content or writing a song, you have to create things that are that intersection of those two things. So you know the biggest mistake people tend to make when they're creating content is they just do what everyone else is doing, right? They just do, if everyone's doing, exactly. um, um, you know, LinkedIn videos of interviews, let's say, um, they start doing that same thing because they see, well, that's popular. But the issue is that that's not actually what's going to stick out. That's not what actually going to create traction. What you need to do is create that little novel twist. So, you know, for example, if, um, you know, let's say you were trying to create content for LinkedIn video, you know, the idea that I've been giving people that you know, I'm waiting for someone to take me up on, is you know there's an idea that would do amazing on LinkedIn and is a great example of something that's familiar and novel? Hmm. Is just do MTV Cribs, but for offices on LinkedIn. Like do a show where you go and you know, tour startup offices. Like it would do amazing. 
because it's familiar, but it's a novel format, a novel right. channel. It has that interplay. It has that intersection. And you see this across all types of content. I mean, music is constantly doing this with how much they sample things, right? The reason right. why you sample other things is it creates that feeling of familiarity. It allows the artist to actually get in there, sort of get in your head. And there's all this interesting science we can talk about in terms of um, you know, familiarity, its role in creativity. But it's one of these things that once you start seeing it, once you start sort of being open your eyes to the role of familiarity and creativity, it really changes your perception. Because I think we have this misunderstanding of creativity as really tied to novelty and newness. But actually, the best artists, the best creatives, blended with familiarity. Now, how does that, Alan, how does that relate to, I guess, relatability? Right? Mm -hmm. So, like, content that might be relatable to me might not be relatable to Greg or or to you. Right? So, like, if you're trying to create a content for everybody, like, do you normally take relatability into um, into account also before you, you should post that post that you're thinking of posting? Or is it all just kind of about familiarity as a as a as a whole? Yeah, so basically I talk about in the book, um, but there's this, the, so this is kind of geeky. So like, you know, excuse me. For I love second, geeky. We love geeky good, stuff here. Good. It, so it's yeah. right here. We love, yep. love I'm, I'm just stuff. straight geek. So, so the book, the book, the book's title is The Creative Curve, and the Creative Curve is sort of my uh, more easy to understand name for a curve that's found in science, um, which the formal term is the inverted um, U-shaped relationship between exposure and preference. Not necessarily the easiest thing to say. And basically, what this is is that what scientists have found, going to this point of familiarity novelty is that how human preference works is that when we first see something for the first time, we're usually kind of frightened by it. Then the more we see it, the more we like it, up until a point where then we start getting bored of it and the more we see it, the less we like it. So it's sort of this U-shape. And you can yeah. think about this with you know music, pop music that you've heard. So you know the first time you heard the new Drake song, Nice For What, you're probably like, eh, this is okay. The third time you're like, oh, this is good. Um, the fifth time you're like, I love this song. The tenth time you're like, this is good, but like maybe I'm getting bored of it. And the twentieth time you're like, please never play nice for whatever again. And so you see this U-shaped relationship, and I call this the creative curve because when you write a business book, you have to come up with fun names for things. So it's you know the creative curve. And um, the thing is, is that this effect, this U-shaped relationship is both an individual level phenomenon, a group level phenomenon, and a population level phenomenon. So it basically helps us understand how an individual person relates to some creative product, but also a group or entire population. And so when you're creating content, the important thing for you is to understand where your audience as a whole is at. You can't over-focus on one individual person, but is an idea too familiar, is it too novel for your entire audience? And the best way to do that, the best way to really understand that is to be a huge consumer. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that we have this misnomer that you know creatives are always doing, they're always creating, they're always putting new stuff out there. And there's this annoying social media meme you guys have probably seen that you know 90% of people consume, 9% of people engage, 1% of people create. And it's so stupid. Partly it's stupid. Hashtag sounds, motivation. Yeah, hashtag hustle. Ins 
Fire. And, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, the reason why it's stupid is that's just not true because when you actually want to interview these creative geniuses, these creatives are actually some of the biggest consumers of content because by consuming information, it allows them to understand what is familiar, what is novel. If you're not one with your audience, you're never going to be able to understand what is going to be interesting to them. And so you have to be a voracious consumer of information, not just a creator. And that's the way that you can really nail the familiarity and the novelty. Yeah. No, it's interesting. The whole familiarity thing where I got burnt out on LinkedIn because everybody started looking yep. and sounding and feeling exactly the same. And I hated it because it was, I, I started sounding like everybody else. Uh, and so I was just, I was actually, I was pretty pissed. I was upset and I was the old man yelling at the kids to get off my lawn kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> and still are. I still am. No, but we still are. We all, uh, I, 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 I'm on the same boat, man. I hear you. Yeah, no, but it, it's interesting around that same time and Sean I'm curious if it's the same for you around the time that I started getting burnt out and not wanting to create because everything looked the same is yep. the same time that I started consuming less because it was overwhelming and so I, I stopped consuming which yeah. also led me to stop creating as much yeah they're they're heavily intertwined and I think you know we make this mistake sometimes with People who are aspiring creatives, they're like, okay, I'm going to go, like, go off into a cabin and write my next great American novel and sort of take myself away from society or, um, you know, I'm not going to consume sort of mainstream culture. I'm just going to consume like super artsy fartsy stuff. And um, the issue is that ultimately when you're a creator, you're creating things for an audience. Um, you know, there's this sort of misunderstanding sometimes of creativity. You know, there's this sort of thing of like, you know, create for yourself and blah, blah, blah. But, the thing I found when I interviewed the great creatives, like the people who are really successful at it, that's not how they think about it. They think about their art in a relationship with their audience. They're not thinking about it as just for themselves. And so you can selfishly create just for yourself, but ultimately if you want to be a true creative achiever, you have to think about it vis-a-vis -vis your audience because that's how in our culture we decide who is a creative genius? It's based on the audience reaction. It's not just based on you in a forest creating something in isolation. The audience reaction in and of itself is how we judge how something is creative. There's a sort of circular logic to it, but that's actually really important to understand. Yeah. Believe it or not, I'm an introvert, and so going out in the middle of the forest <laughs> yeah. sounds, with no society around sounds really good to me. Um, well, man. Well, yeah, so it, go for it, Sean. Yeah, no, it, it's just funny how, like, the whole, um, I guess, when it, when it comes to, especially on LinkedIn, how everyone is just doing the exact same thing, right? And a lot of people, like, I always hear, or I've always heard, you know, do what you, like, you post your content for your audience, right? So, like, let's say if I have a specific audience, right? Like, how would I reach out or reach across the aisle to maybe get out of my comfort zone and start posting like vulnerability stuff. You know what I mean? Like, so for me personally, like I have a, like I'm more or less do like some niche like satire stuff, but like for me, vulnerability is really hard. Right. So Alan, how would you really, um, I guess, inspire people to kind of break out of their comfort zone? Yeah. So I, I have a few different thoughts. So, um, you know, one thing is obviously if you're interested in getting after something, you know, start consuming things like that, you know, and see what works. And, 
it's not just about passive consumption, but it's about active consumption. So what do I mean by that difference? So what I mean by active consumption is I want you when you consume to like touch it and feel it. So when you look at a piece of content that did really well, how did they start it, right? What was the first line? What type of content did they use? What type of language did they use? Did they use any special facts, emojis? If it's a video, was it captioned, was it not? And when you'd start to look at content in a more active, sort of touchy-feely way, that, when you start to realize the patterns around what's working and not working, when you just consume it, it's actually much harder to do. So when I talk about consumption, it's really important that you do that sort of active consumption. So that's the first thing. The second thing, you know, you just said something. You just said, well, vulnerability is hard for me. Yeah. Well, like I, ha I, have a, I have something to tell you. It's hard for everyone the first time. It's hard for everyone the fifth time. It's, yeah. It doesn't get as hard the 10th time or the 15th time. And so I think we mistake this notion that, well, you know, X is hard for me. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm scared to do it. I'm not going to do it because, you know, if there's other people, it's easy out there. It's not easy for other people. They might have just done it before. You know, I've, um, I'm young, but I've probably given now probably 400 to 500 speeches in my life. I've been doing public speaking for about 10 years. And I have to tell you, public speaking for me is literally the least scary thing in my day. I love it. Like I could, uh, if you put me in front of a crowd of 2000 people, like I am literally not nervous at all. The first time I spoke, I was like, holy shit, I am going to die. This yeah. is terrifying. And people are like, wow, you're really comfortable up there. I'm like, because I've done it like literally 400 times. Like this is like not, this is just not something that's new to me. And so I think we often mistake this, you know, I was, when I was writing this book, I had a friend who was like, well, you know, I get it, Alan, but like, whew, I can tell you, um, I'm not a good dancer. I'm never going to be a good dancer. And I was like, um, well, Joe, have you ever, have you ever taken a dancing lesson? He was like, well, no. And I was like, then how the heck do you know? Yeah. And, you know, there's this whole video genre on YouTube that if you ever want to feel inspired to try something, um, you should check it out. But there's an entire genre on YouTube of uh, people posting singing videos before and after voice lessons. So like they'll sing and then they'll post a video a year later after a year of voice lessons. And guys, people go from like literally sounding like me to having these like <laughs> angelic voices. It's crazy. But it's actually yeah, not that it's surprising awesome. because so often we sort of mistake initial difficulty with a quote unquote lack of talent, forgetting that the people we view as talented typically just started really young and their parents forced them through the hard part. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And so we we're coming up on the 45 minute mark. And so what I wanted to do, or actually, excuse me, we have not come up on the 45 minute mark. I am not going to rush you off this thing. I just looked at the <laughs> yeah, I forgot that I, I forgot I'm, we I'm started. I'm into this one, Greg. We know, have a good guest. We have a guest that we I know. I forgot that we started 10 minutes a little bit later. What are you doing? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel pressured. I know. I know. I See, the thing is, I need a corgi in my life to make this anxiety kind of like exactly. die out. Exactly. Emotional support corgi. I, need, I would love an emotional support corgi. Uh, no, so, okay. Let's dive into this then. So you've got the, you're trying stuff, you're consuming stuff. What, so what of those things would you say is kind of the, the first step in, because there's not really, unless you're going to hire a LinkedIn coach or a social media <laughs> group or something like that, there's not really like people that are going to give you lessons on how to create content, right? How does somebody 
on their own, go figure that out. What, where should they start consuming? Yeah, so I think, I think in terms of consumption, one of the big things I found with these creatives is that they go very, very narrow. Yeah. So they're not, you know, they're not on Twitter, you know, reading all this stuff across every place ever. I think there's this misnomer that, um, you know, creatives are generalists. You know, they're taking stuff from all these different wide places, and that's why they come up with these new novel ideas. Uh, that's not actually true. When yeah. you actually interview people who are the creative greats, like I interviewed, for example, Ted Sarandos, who's the chief content officer of Netflix. He's yeah. been there for eight years, overseeing all of the content decisions, the entire original programming strategy, all this stuff. And he tells a story about how, you know, when he was 18 years old, and he credits a lot of this to his success, when he was 18 years old, he got a job as a clerk at a video rental store and literally watched every single movie in the store. Literally every single movie in the store. He went very, very, very deep on film. That was his niche. That's where he went deep on. He didn't also read, you know, great classical works and listen to the radio and do all this stuff. No, no. He went very, very, very deep. And I think people are sort of afraid of that because um, it seems wrong. It seems off. But that was one of the most clear and consistent patterns I found in my interviews was people went very, very deep in one medium. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing, as I mentioned, is, you know, make your consumption more active um, you know, focus on that. One thing you can do is actually start actually outlining when you see a piece of content you like, outline how it's structured. Um, this is something that I talk about in the book that Ben Franklin did when he wanted to learn how to become a great writer. Um, literally, when he was 18 years old, he started taking articles from The Spectator, which was sort of a, you can call it like the economist of the time, like it was very well written, it was kind of globalist, like all this stuff. And he would literally outline, like, how did they structure their articles? Did it start with a quote, an argument? How did they actually build it up? And by doing that, he was able to start processing the patterns of what made these great creative works, right? By learning the structure of success, he could then create his own little twist of novelty. So that's one of the things that I want you to do, that is if you're out there trying to create content, stop focusing on creating something so new, and definitely don't do something that's so familiar. Go and look at people who you really think are doing a great job and literally just outline how their content structured. Do that for a month and I promise you, you'll start to get the sense and the patterns of what's working and what's not working. Once you have that pattern, use that as the recipe for with which you'll experiment within. You know, the way I like to talk about it is, you know, chefs. I interviewed a Michelin star chef for the book and one of the things he pointed out to me I thought was really prudent was, Almost all chefs go to culinary school. Almost all chefs learn the basic recipes for stuff. If you want to make an experimental omelet, let's say, you first have to learn how to make a traditional omelet. Like you can't experiment if you don't know the base or the context or the standard. And so there's this really sort of um, important part about learning the basics for which then you can sort of experiment and twist off of. Yeah. No, I, so real quick just for you to hear and also for anybody that's listening to this to hear, this advice is probably, no, not probably, it's the best advice that I've gotten because I've asked a lot of people kind of similar or same questions around content creation and I almost always get the cop-out answer that, oh, just start. Like that's Terrible yeah. answer. It's a, yeah. yeah. Just, just do. No, no research. Don't look at any content. Just go out there, post a video of yourself telling people how afraid you are to start posting. <laughs> like, that's what we're getting post. now. Yeah. That's this what it is. This is terrifying. <laughs> I'm so scared. 
I'm horrified, guys. What do I do? <sighs> no. Yeah, like, my my least favorite category of LinkedIn content, uh, which luckily has subsided recently, is those like over dramatic poems. That's like, oh I woke gosh. up in a pool of blood. I was fired by my mother. My accountant <laughs> was calling. Everything is right. going wrong. Is that the Take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> And then one, then one client called me with a million dollar check, and everything was better. And I'm oh, like, oh, shoot yeah. me. Oh, I saw a poem on there today, and I almost <laughs> just flipped my desk. No, I, I, I said it to you originally. You told me you liked it. <laughs> that was yours. Yeah, it was mine. Yeah. Was a, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> yeah. Let's not fight on here. Okay. No, but like seriously, like everybody, there's there's this thought that. All you have to do to become a content creator is to create content. And so you just have to start and then all of a sudden, boom, LinkedIn influencer. You're good. <laughs> and it's like there's work that goes into it. And I love that you're you're talking about like, look, take a month and figure out what what other people are doing. Because that's 100 percent like you're actually now that you're kind of unraveling. This is almost like a, a uh, what's it called? A counseling session or something like that of me figuring out my past. But that's how I started creating. It's like I just I watched people that I admired like crazy and how they did it for probably like a good year before I actually oh, totally. started like I interviewed something. I interviewed um I interviewed some really big YouTube stars for my book. So I interviewed Casey Neistat and Connor Franta and um, you know, Connor Franta has like 20 million subscribers across all his social channels, like something He's kind nuts. of a big deal, I guess. Yeah, kind of a big deal. And uh, one of the things he told me was he spent basically a year and a half before he created his first video. He was just like crazy addicted to watching YouTube videos. Yeah. Right. And he just like, you know, or JK Rowling, who I did an interview, but I interviewed her first publisher and her first agent. Um, you know, she, as a child, had this sort of hectic you know, life with her parents. Her parents were always fighting. And so she would lock herself in her bedroom and just read, 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 read. In college, she actually had library finds. She had so many books checked out. And so when you look at the stories of great creators, it's often also the stories of great consumers. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Like, that's just, it's just like an interesting thing. I, like, obviously, it's like... You always know that you have to get influences and you really should be watching other things to get, you know, some ideas for your own content. But just thinking like it's just something I never really like sat down and thought about. You know what I mean? Does that does that make sense that like, okay, sure. I mean, I really need to go out and need to watch, you know, Greg Johnson's videos and kind of outline and really understand how it's making it successful. Like the well, little the difference detail. It's the difference behind doing something with intentionality and not. And the, you know, the, the book is titled The Creative Curve. The alternative title I was playing with is Intentional Creativity because I think people look at the word um, creativity and they don't think about intentionality. But these are also the people who aren't usually good at creativity. Right? Most of us aren't good at it. But the people who are good at it are very intentional. And in the book I break down, I have, you know, we talked about consumption. That's one of the four things I talk about as these sort of things you can do to be more creative. But um, the overarching theme is that these people are very intentional. They're very thoughtful. They're very systematic. And I think people don't like this answer because it goes against this sort of monomyth we've developed of this like magical artistical genius who um, is sort of, you know, crazy and they just create these things. And the issue is like, this is just not how in reality it works. Like there's this story of, you know, Mozart, if you watch the movie Amadeus, the story of Mozart and how he would 
um, compose music, you know, away from a piano, completely in his head. And he would simply write down the music fully formed. He would not edit it. Um, you know, he wouldn't, he it was, it was perfect. He would just in his head compose it and then write it down. It was done. And this is, this originates from a letter from Mozart where he talks about his composition process and he talks about it like this. Guys, here's the issue. The letter was literally forged. It was written by, it's hashtag fake news. It was literally <laughs> written by a, um, it was published in 1815 by Johann Rochlitz, who's a music journalist and slash you know, music publisher. And he was a big fan of Mozart and he wanted to you know, sell papers and he also wanted to boost Mozart. And so he created this myth of Mozart who would compose music in his head. And this is stuff we have, that's a pretty common thought around Mozart. Like we literally have manuscripts from Mozart of music with tons of edits on it. Like this is just factually inaccurate. When you look at Mozart's actual letters, he talks about how hard it was for him to compose music and how much work it took and how long it took. And so we just have these sort of like ridiculous notions um, of creativity in popular culture that really sort of infect um, how we practice our own creativity. Yeah. Now let me ask you. Let me ask you this. This is a little bit one off uh, from the topic, but still within the, the same realm. So let's say that you're you're creating content. You're doing well. You switch up, or, or you you notice that man, this content is not getting the traction that I intended it to, or this is like people hate this, or I'm just like, how do you how do you go from this sucks to you're, you're not giving up. You just yeah. you have to switch it up. What do you do to switch up that style? So one of the things I talk about in the book is um, the role of data and the role of iteration and creativity. And so, you know, I think we talk about those things sort of as an anathema to creativity. But these great creatives um, spend an incredible amount of time finding ways to listen to their audience. If you start recognizing creativity as your goal is to create an, um, an impression, an emotion, whatever it is in your audience, what you then realize is that involving audience feedback early in your creative process is huge. Um, you know, we look at things like movies and we think about, you know, screenwriters going off and writing, you know, scripts by themselves on the old typewriter that's clackety clackety, but that's not how it works. You know, screenwriters get tons of external feedback. Once movies are done, they actually spend a ton of energy doing um, testing and preview screening to see if everything works well. Um, you know, the movie Fatal Attraction, which did phenomenal in the box office, won all these Academy Awards, um, they actually completely redid the ending. The famous ending is actually a rewrite because when they were testing with audiences, the audience were like, this sucks. And so... I think you have to, as a creative, really get over this idea of this idea that you're creating for yourself because I think it's so unhealthy. It's so unhealthy because it gives you permission to not actually listen to your audience. And if you're creating just for yourself, like I don't see the point, right? I don't see the point. I think it's I think it's um, gratuitous. Yeah. No, I hear you. And so the. Let's get back to the very, very basic of things. So somebody, somebody's been watching. They've been uh, consuming, actively consuming. Uh, maybe they've been looking at somebody like, I don't know, Alan Gannett, let's say. Oh, the worst. The worst. The hair. Got to uh, get rid of him. <laughs> but uh, they've, been, they've been consuming for a while, and they're, they're like, okay, I'm finally going to do it. Like, do you – where 
trying to think of how to word this. Like, how do they even start with that? Like, okay, now I'm going to actually create. Is that when it comes to, I'm just going to do it? Like, yeah. So I think I think there's a couple things. Um, so one of the things is is when you think about creativity. I mean, oftentimes there's there's a difficult part, right? Where it's early on, it's hard. You know, as humans. We're not really wired to like doing difficult things. We like things that are surmountable. This is why video games are so addictive is because they're actually set up to be increasingly difficult. So you get addicted to them because you're constantly making progress and that's a very fulfilling feeling. And so that's why you see so many stories of creative geniuses are starting very young because their parents force them through the hard part. So that's just something important to know. So if you want to do creativity, one of the most important steps, and I talked about this in the book, um, in great detail is you need to surround yourself with a creative community. And there's one part that's especially important. I call them a, a modern muse. And you need to put people around you who actually who actually push you, who actually motivate you, who actually motivate you to get through the hard part. You need to find a replica from other people's sort of early parental experience in your social fabric around you. You need to find other ways to push through that. And one of the ways it's actually really effective is friendly competition. So find people who are also trying to achieve the same thing as you and, you know, have those discussions around what's working, what's not working. You know, get a little bit jealous, get a little bit envious, get motivated to do it because you need to find a way to push through the hard part. That's the thing that you really, because that's where most people give up when it comes to creativity. So are you talking about pods, like joining one of those pods that everybody's talking about? Or what do you Sure, do that. I mean, I don't really, you know, I think it's, um, you know, it can, it doesn't have to be online. It can be offline. You know, a lot of YouTube creators, for example, like um, they live, like a lot of YouTube creators live in this one apartment building in LA. Like they're all of them are friends together. There's, there's these different ways. A lot of creators go and live in similar places. There's this effect sociologists call clustering where people in a creative industry all move to the same area. Um, and you know, part of the benefits you learn from each other, part of the benefits you also feel pressure from each other. And so, you know, if you want to start a startup, you move to San Francisco and particularly probably these days put your office in Soma because that's where all your friends are and that's where you're going to run into people and that's where you're going to um, be able to feel that pressure and that learning. Interesting. Awesome, man. Well, Sean, did you have did you have another question for him? Honestly, I just want to know where you found the time to write a book this detailed while running a company. <laughs> that, that's um, honestly like what I really want to know. Right now. I, um, I, I have the benefit of being a single guy with no children. Um, and so that definitely helps. Uh, and so I think the time when you may traditionally think of putting your kids to bed is a time when I would write. Um, and I also was not a very good friend, to be honest, for two years and just did not have much of a social life. And so, um, so that's how long it took to write it. It was a two year process. So, no, it was, yeah, it was about three years, um, just because I have a job. Right. Yeah. And so it, it took a long, long, long time to get done. You could, you could probably write a book in about six months as a professional author's doing six months. It just, it took me three years. That's yeah. Awesome. I can write like a thousand i can't write a facebook a linkedin post in like two weeks so <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so what so what you got going on is you got track maven tell us a little bit i want to do a little bit of a plug for track maven real quick because i thought that was pretty interesting what you guys are doing yeah so track maven is a marketing insights company so what we do is we help a lot of big consumer brands taking data from all their different marketing platforms 
and find the patterns in it. What's working? What's not working? What story should they be telling, not telling? Um, you know, what channel should they be focusing on? And so it's really for me, I, I love it. I've been doing it for almost six years. It's this intersection of the left brain and the right brain when it comes to marketers, right? It's how do you apply math and science and reason to something which seems so esoteric like marketing? And so you know, we work with a lot of big brands, you know, MBA, Saks Fifth Avenue, Bergdorf, Neiman. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Very cool. And so this book, The Creative Curve, is coming out June 12th everywhere. Where do they pick it up? At Borders or something? Any, anywhere. Borders. <laughs> borders. Not Borders. But um, if you go to um, thecreativecurve.com, it has links to all the different places. But anywhere you buy a book, uh, it exists. Um, it's coming out in 11 countries. So it's all wow. over the place. And um, yeah, check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alan. I will see you on LinkedIn and we'll chat again soon. Thanks, man. Bye, guys.